Well, again, good morning, church. It's really good to be with you this morning. Church, as we enter the last couple of weeks of 2023, and as we draw closer and closer to Christmas Day and the start of a brand new year, I want to bring you a message in line with the season we're in. The message that I've titled, Experiencing God's Best at Christmas. Now, with Christmas Day fast approaching, and we're thinking about all these gift ideas and things you maybe would like to receive yourself, let's just say that today, I was able to grant you one wish. And that wish was to give you the absolute best of something that was important to you. What would you say? You would probably say yes, right? But what would you say yes to? Would it be the best when it comes to material possessions? or the best of health, or the best position in your career? Or maybe for you, it would be the best partner to spend the rest of your life with. For everyone, it would be a different answer, because you see, best is a comparative word. What is best in my mind according to me, and what is best in your mind according to you, is something very different. We all have these perfect outcomes formulated in our own minds as to what is best, But I want to pose a question to you this morning. Is what we consider to be our best really what is best for our lives? I want you to think about that. Let me ask that question again. Is what we consider, is what Ryan considers to be his best really what is best for his life? You know, the world will offer us many ways to live our best life now. And for most people, that either means popularity Position, power, possessions, or all the finances that you could ever dream of. For most people, that is their best, but as history and experience has taught us, right, people who attain all these things still end up being depressed. They still end up being lonely and having no meaningful relationships. They still end up feeling empty on the inside. Their best doesn't bring the best results, so in reality, that cannot be the best, right? Now, obviously, there's a solution to this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Obviously, there's a solution to our human condition of seeking out the best for ourselves. And can anybody tell me what that is? Yes, it is Jesus. But the answer I'm looking for is to seek out God's best for our lives, which is Jesus. You see, church, the only way past our best that leads us into a mess is to seek out God's best, which actually leads us to being blessed. Can I say that again? The only way past our best that leads us into a mess is to seek out God's best, which actually leads us to being blessed. Which brings us to the main character that we are going to focus on this morning, that being Mary, the mother of Jesus. Go with me to Luke chapter 1, and while you're finding your way there in your Bibles, What we're going to learn about today through the life of Mary is experiencing God's best at Christmas. And I've added the word Christmas not because this only applies to our lives over the Christmas season, but because this is very much part of the Christmas story that leads to the birth of our Savior Jesus and changes the world's calendar from B.C. or from B.C. to A.D. Now in the story and through the life of Mary, there are three important principles we can learn especially when it comes to realizing God's best for our lives. 
For those who like to take notes, number one, realizing God's grace in our lives. That's number one. Number two, responding in faith and obedience. And number three, rejoicing in God and His Word. Did you get that? So let's start with principle number one in experiencing God's best for our lives. Read together with me from Luke chapter 1 verse 26. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, church, Do you know what that word favor means? Look at what it means. It's the Greek word charis, and it means grace. It means grace, it means kindness, it means a gift. So the first thing that you and I need to understand is that God's best is anchored in His grace. It is something undeserved, but guess what? Regardless of how undeserved we all are, it is still God's heart to give us His best. How do I know that? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. It says, For by grace, that same word charis, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith and grace, they go together. It is a gift from God. Salvation is God's gift, which means that God's best is anchored in His grace. On that note, let me pause for a moment and ask you this question. Do you realize that God wants His best for you? Do you really believe that? This is a very important thing to take a hold of in your life, because if you don't, you're going to continue to seek out your best for your life. Satan will tell you, no, 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 my friend, you don't have to be on the lookout for God's best. You have to do it your way. And you can be like that Frank Sinatra song that goes, I did it my way. (laughs) Great old song, church, but listen, my way is not always the best way. And that's why I need God's grace, amen? amen? So I want you to do something practical for me this morning. I want you to say this to your neighbor, and I want you to say this with with conviction. Tell your neighbor, look at them in the eye and say, God wants what is best for you. Say it like you mean it. God wants what is best for you. Now, I want you to turn to your other neighbor. And I want you to tell your other neighbor, God wants what is best for me. Make it personal. That's right. Now, you may still be sitting there thinking, but pastor... How do you know that God wants what is best for me? How can you be so sure? Well, there's many ways that I can show you, but I want you to have a look with me at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Do you know what this means, church? The grace of God that has appeared is referring to Jesus. This grace is Jesus. 
And so get this, God's best for you is Jesus. God's best for you is Jesus coming into this world and bringing you the eternal gift of salvation. It is the greatest gift that we will ever receive, and it will forever settle the argument on whether or not God wants his best for you and me. Amen, somebody. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Is there a witness in the house this morning to his grace? Amen. So grace is this unmerited favor, this gift from God. But did you know that grace has other applications and implications for our lives as well? Go back to uh, Titus chapter 2. It says in verse 11, let me read that verse again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And listen to verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. Church, do you realize that your desires and my desires have to be changed by God? I cannot change my own desires. I can try and try and try again in my own strength, but I need God's grace to bring breakthrough. I need God's grace to bring lasting change. And the earlier you and I discover that, the quicker and more regularly we will get on our knees and pray, Lord, I need your grace. Lord, please change my heart. Please change my fleshly desires. That is grace. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Are we living in the present age? Amen. You see, without God's grace, I'm going to be self-centered. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be ungodly and full of worldly passions, and I'm not going to live uprightly. And once I realize God's grace is from Him and that He wants to give it to me to help me, I will begin to connect the dots that God really wants what is best for me. And that's why you and I need to realize God's grace in our lives. That's why we need to pray for His grace to accomplish that which He has called us to do. You know, church, the uniqueness of Christianity compared to all other religions, do you know what it is? It is the grace of God. With other religions, you need to earn salvation. You need to do it your own way. Only in Christianity will you discover it is of God. It is of God's grace. The Apostle Paul understood this principle, and he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He said, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That's an important part. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Is there anyone that says here today, I need this grace with me wherever I go? Amen. Amen. We all do, right? Now, I don't want to put a dampener on what I just said, but church, do you know that there are barriers to grace? Do you know that you can stop God's grace from impacting your life? You know what it is? I want to make sure you know what it is before I move on to the next point. 
Church, here it is. To prevent God's grace in your life, all you have to do is be proud. Because to be proud is to stop the grace of God from entering your life. Can I prove that? Let me show you. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Church, humility is the secret of experiencing God's grace, which is God's best for your life. Humility is so important that Peter says you should clothe yourselves with it. It should be your your fashion statement, so to speak. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to walk around with clothing that says, you know what, humble man walking here or humble woman walking here. No. It means that you are constantly clothed with the awareness of, Lord, I need you. I am dependent upon you, and I can do nothing without you. It means that you are open to correction, and you don't get easily offended or or agitated by what others say. You're clothed with the awareness of that it's not about me, it's about what the Lord wants to do through me. If you are full of self, always thinking of yourself, always critical of others, judging others, you're not open to feedback, you don't like correction, you're easily offended and hop around from church to church when you get offended, in all probability you are full of pride. But the Bible says, let's read it again, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility, toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So church, if you want God's best for your life, number one, you need to realize God's grace in your life, and you need to realize that it is given to the humble. That's the first principle. Principle number two, responding in faith and obedience. Go back to Luke chapter one, and let's pick it up from verse 31. The angel continues to speak to Mary, and there are eight things he tells her that's going to happen in her future. Eight things that will change this young woman's life from ordinary to extraordinary, from natural to supernatural. He says to her, and behold, number one, you will conceive in your womb. In other words, Mary, you're a virgin, but you're going to have a child. Number two, you are going to bear a son. It's going to be a boy. Number three, it starts to get a little bit more serious here. You will call his name Jesus. Number four, he will be great. Number five, he will be called the son of the most high. Number six, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Number seven, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And number eight, of his kingdom there will be no end. Amen to that, right? And church, when Mary heard this, can you imagine what went through her mind? As scholars will tell us, she was probably only around the age of between 14 and 16 years old. Here was the teenager given the most amazing revelation. This revelation that she will carry the Savior of this world. And let's look at how she initially responds in verse 34. She replies to the angel and says, How will this be since I am a virgin? Literally in the Greek Bible, it says, I have not known a man. How can that be? Well, verse 35 tells us, it says, 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Son of God. And then God knows what Mary was thinking at, that, at this point, and all the thoughts that are, are rushing through her mind. And so he gives us some encouragement and confirmation in verse 36. Through the angel, the Lord says to Mary, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with, with her who was called barren. So in other words, Mary, since Elizabeth is too old to conceive and has always been barren, but is now well on her way in her pregnancy, since that miracle has been made possible by me, Mary, I want you to believe that what I've told you is going to happen through your life is also possible. And he just caps it all off by saying in verse 37, and I want you to highlight, underline, and circle this in your Bible. What does he say? Say it with me. For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, at this point, Mary has to make a choice, right? Mary has to make a choice, as we all do at different junctures and stages of our lives. She either has to trust and obey or doubt and disobey. She has to respond, and what does she do? She responds with faith and obedience. In verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You know, church, it's easy to say I have faith to believe for something. I want you to hear what I'm saying. But do you know that there is no, if there is no obedience in your life, there is no real faith? You have to respond in faith and obedience. You see, obedience has its foundation because you trust God. Mary hears this amazing statement that nothing is impossible with God. She has faith to believe it, but then knowing that nothing is impossible with God, she proceeds to say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Her obedience meets her faith as she submits to the will of her master. Now, who knows that obedience comes at a cost? When Mary said yes to the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, she knew that she was risking her own well-being. Back in those days when you were betrothed, it was more significant and binding than what we do in today's culture when we get engaged. Back then, if you were betrothed in the Jewish culture, it was like you were actually married to each other. It wasn't a case of, you know what, let's see how it goes with this engagement, and then maybe at the end we'll get married. No, there was a lot more commitment required from the start, from the couple, and from the families, and the only way the betrothal could be broken was to have a divorce. And in the time of the betrothal, which was for about a year or so, you were not able or not allowed to consummate that marriage by having sexual relations with your partner. Now, the same applies today. You are supposed to remain pure until you get married. But what you have to understand here in this context is that when Mary said yes, she was saying yes to a possible divorce. 
She was saying yes to possibly losing her life because the crime of falling pregnant during the betrothal as a virgin was punishable by death. She was saying yes to being ridiculed, being humiliated, and rejected by society. And so, why did she say yes, you may ask? Because she understood you must respond in faith when God speaks, and to respond in faith is to obey. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, a lot of times, maybe even most of the time, while people do not diligently see God or have a hunger for God, it's because they have been brainwashed and lied to by Satan that God isn't really after our best. That's why most people do not seek after God and obey Him. If you had to just ask yourself the question, what is it that God wants me to do, and I know what it is and I'm not obeying it, like living a holy life, asking for forgiveness, overcoming offenses, dealing with porn or substance addictions, or actively working on anger issues. If God is speaking to, you about, uh, speaking to you about dealing with those issues in your life and you're not operating in obedience, let me tell you, it is probably because you are afraid of what might happen. And you're afraid because it's going to cost you something. And you don't believe that God wants what is best for you, so in turn, you feel it's going to cost you more than you're willing to risk. Am I speaking to someone this morning? But church, let me tell you something. Yes, obedience is costly, but it is more costly not to obey God. Why? Because of one thing, you will not know the blessings you have missed. What am I saying? I'm saying obedience brings blessings. Obedience brings blessings. Blessings to you, blessings to your children, blessings to your family, and blessings to the people around you. Let me tell you one thing, every ministry that has been blessed by God first started from a place of obedience. Disobedience, on the other hand, brings a curse. You will be cursed, your children will be affected, the people around you will be affected, and there's no ministry that has ever started and been successful throughout the world without or with disobedience, right, without obedience, And that's why the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life. Therefore choose blessing that you and your offspring may live. It's a choice, right? And this is a choice that Mary makes. Because look at what happens as we read further on in Luke chapter 1. Verse 39 says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Church, what is this telling us? This is telling us that you are blessed if you believe what God is saying and if you are willing to obey to the point of fulfillment. This is important. You are blessed if you are willing to believe what God is saying and if you obey to the point of fulfillment. Jesus was preaching one day and in Luke chapter 11, it says a woman in the crowd called out to him and said, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey and who do it. You know, church, there is a lot spoken of in Christian circles about grace and salvation. There's a lot spoken of about faith. But very seldom do preachers talk about obedience. But you see, you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have faith without obedience. You cannot have salvation without grace. You cannot have salvation without faith, which means that you cannot have salvation without obedience. They are all intertwined. You see, some people want to go on the angle of it's just grace, grace, and more grace. So I can live any way I want to, and, and I don't have to do any work for the kingdom of God. And then you have those people where it's all works and no grace. But they go together. They are all intertwined. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, salvation apart from obedience is unknown in the sacred scriptures. Apart from obedience, there can be no salvation, for salvation without obedience is a self-contradictory impossibility. God wants what is best for you and me. Do you believe that this morning? And that starts by realizing God's grace in our lives, number one, and number two, by responding in faith and obedience. Amen? Let's move on to our last principle in experiencing God's best for our lives. Principle number three, rejoicing in God and His Word. Now, as we pick it up from verse 46, what we have here at church is the famous Magnificat. Have you heard of that word before? You would have seen it as a bit of a highlight or a headline in your Bible. Magnificat is the Latin word that means to magnify. And so what we have here is Mary worshiping God, praising God, and rejoicing in Him. She is magnifying God. And before we read this Magnificat, what's really interesting to note here is that Mary, even as young as she was, really knew her Bible. Because everything she says is a quotation from the Old Testament. Mary knew her Bible, and this is an important observation for you and me, because Church, it's hard for you to know God and to magnify God, right, if you do not study the Word of God. Do you want to experience God's best in your life? Study the Bible, right? Memorize the Scriptures. Get to know God through the Bible. Why? Because that's how we get to know His will for our lives, and how will we obey if we don't know His will? Makes sense, right? Can you remember what Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says? It's a verse that I quoted a few weeks back. What does it say? 
Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which means you need to change the way you think. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, let me tell you something this morning. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you can grow spiritually without studying the Bible. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you can create your own religion or invent God in your own image. Many people, even some Christians, think, you know what, God is like this or, or God is like that. But it is a product of their own imagination. You must submit the way you think to the Word of God. Because it's not some of God, right? So not some of the Bible and some of motivational books and some of New Age principles and some of uh, ancestral worship and some of Confucius. No, it is all of God. And then you will determine what is good and acceptable and perfect for your life. Amen? Amen. Mary had this understanding. She knew God's word. She rejoiced in God's word and in turn rejoiced in him because of what she knew to be true of God for her own life. So let's close off this morning by reading the Magnificat. I'm not going to have time to go into detail of what she says and, and how it refers to the Old Testament. But just so you know that as we read this, it reveals Mary's heart and mind that they were saturated with the Word of God. It contains repeated echoes of Hannah's prayers in the book of Samuel and numerous references to the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. The entire passage is a point-by-point -point reciting of the covenant promises of God. And church, while we read what she says, and even as we go away today and, and throughout this week, I want you to consider the type of worship that she gives to the Lord. And we need to all ask ourselves, all of us, we need to ask ourselves the question, is this type of worship evident in my life? Because when I consider what God has done for me, His grace, His mercy, His salvation, His hand in my life, His provision, His eternal plan for me, His promises that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, is my worship an adequate response to what He has done and will continue to do? Let's read this, and then we will close with a song that speaks about God's amazing grace. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever and ever. Can we give God all the glory for his word this morning, church?